0: Chapter Twenty of Small Souls by Louis Cuperus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Constance, after this talk with Bertha, for days felt easier in her mind, as though filled with an indefinable contentment that bid fair to soothe and heal. Yes, she hoped that gradually she would win them all back, like that, all her near ones whom she had lost for years. She saw Mamma daily, and in these regular meetings between mother and child, there was the sweetness of finding each other after long years of almost uninterrupted separation, a sweetness touched with a melancholy that held no bitterness, a mingling of glad tears and smiles over the happiness of it all. Also, Constance had now found Bertha again. Although they did not see each other until Mamma's Sunday evening, Still, there was more sisterly confidence between them, while Marianne grew to like running in at the kirchhoff Lahn and would stay to dinner or go cycling with van der Velke and Adi. In this way, light bonds were established. As for Carol and Kato, Constance was sorry, for in Carol she still remembered the brother with whom she used to play on the boulders in the river at Bautenzorg. But she had felt at once that she must not expect much from Carol now that he and his wife had become mutual images of placid egotism, wrapped in their well-fed middle-class life, in the sheltered comfort of their warm, shut house. No, Carol, she felt, she had lost, though they were conventionally civil to each other. With Gerrit it was pleasanter. Gerrit and Adeline would come now and then to take tea in the evening, after the children had gone to bed only it was a pity that Gerrit always insisted on crabbing and poking fun at the Van Nagels and their friends. This, Constance thought, was not very tactful towards Van der Velke, because, though he and she did not go into society, it so happened that Van der Velke had a good many old friends at the club who belonged to the aristocratic set. Gerrit was a boisterous, lively fellow, fair-haired, handsome, broad-shouldered and vigorous in his hussar's uniform. But his boisterousness was, sometimes, she thought, rather overdone, and she suspected that van der Velke did not like Gerrit, thought him a little vulgar, and so she was always on the alert to take up the cudgels for Gerrit against her husband, and van der Velke said nothing about Gerrit, and was even amiable and talkative when Gerrit and Adeline were there. Adeline was a dear little woman. A fair-haired little doll mother, with her seven children, like a family of flaxen-haired dolls. The oldest a girl turned eight, the youngest a baby of a year or so, and Gerrit was always making jokes about not leaving off yet. And indeed, Adeline was expecting another in the autumn. So Constance got on well with Gerrit and Adeline, but still she felt out of touch with this brother too even though Gerrit had such a charming way of bringing back the memory of their early days, when they used to play in the river at Bautenzorg. Yes, she was an interesting child then, Gerrit always said. There was something so nice about her. She was full of imagination. And it was curious to hear this great heavy hussar going into ecstasies over that little sister of the old days, a frail fair-haired little girl in her white badu. She used to walk on her pretty little bare feet over the boulders, and invent all sorts of fables and fairy tales, which her elder brothers were not quite capable of understanding, and yet had to play at good-humouredly, for the two brothers were very fond of their little sister. Yes, Gerrit always said, he had not understood until afterwards how much poetry there was in Constance in the days when she dreamed those stories, those fables in which she often played a fairy, "'or a putri out of the Javanese legends. "'At such times she would wreathe her hair "'with a garland of broad leaves. "'She would look like Ophelia in the water, "'decked with tropical blossoms, "'and the brothers must needs follow the tiny bare feet "'and the fancies of their little sister, "'who looked marvellously charming "'as she ran over the great rocks, "'ran through the foaming water, "'ran in crystal-green shadows, "'which quivered over the river.' "'under the heavy awning of the foliage. "'Yes, that had left a great impression on Gerrit, "'and he often talked about it. "'Constance, do you remember? "'What a nice little girl you were then, "'though you were a little queer.' "'Until Constance would laugh "'and ask if she was no longer nice "'now that she no longer ran about barefoot "'in a white badju "'with purple kumbang spatu on her temples. "'Then Gerrit shook his head and said yes.' She was very nice still, but, but, and diving back into his recollections, he said that, two years later, she suddenly changed, became grown up and a prig, and would dance with no one but the secretary-general. And then Constance cried with laughter, because Gherit could never forget that secretary-general. Yes, she would only dance with the biggest bigwigs. She was a mass of vanity, a real daughter of the Tuan Bazaar, and it was as though Gerrit were bent upon getting back that little younger sister who used to make up fairy tales in the river behind the palace at Bautenzorg, notwithstanding that he was now a big, heavy, powerful fellow and a captain of Hussars. Then Constance would look at him, handsome, broad, fair-haired, vigorous, enjoying his drink or his good cigar, and she reflected that she did not know Gerrit and did not understand Gerrit. Very vaguely, She felt something in him escape her, felt it so vaguely that it was hardly a thought, but merely a haze passing over her bewilderment. Adeline sat very quietly in the midst of it, smiling pleasantly at those reminiscences, those games of the old days. Yes, it's extraordinary, the way children play by themselves, she said simply, and then she would tell prettily of the games of her own fair-haired brood but Gerrit would shake his head. No, that was romping, what his boys did, but the other thing was playing, real playing, until Constance laughingly asked him to talk of something else than her bare feet, and then the conversation took a more ordinary turn, and it was as if both Gerrit and Constance felt that, although they liked each other, they had not yet found each other, and in this there was a very gentle melancholy that could hardly be formulated. Constance did not see much of Ernst. She and van der Velke and Addie had once lunched with him at his rooms, and he had been a most amiable host. He showed her the old family papers, which, after Papa's death, he had asked leave to keep, because he took most interest in them, and they would be in good hands. He would leave them to Gerrit's eldest son. Geritz was the only one of the four brothers who so far had provided heirs. He showed her his old china, and called her attention to the different marks that were signs of its value. Next he spread out an old piece of brocade, embroidered with seed-pearls, and said, very seriously, that it was a stomacher from a dress of Queen Elizabeth's. When Constance laughed and ventured to express a doubt, he became rather grave, and almost angry, but graciously changed the conversation as one does, a little condescendingly, with people who have said something stupid, who have not the same culture as ourselves. When they sat down to lunch in his room, with its beautiful old colouring, the table was so carefully laid, the flowers so tastefully arranged, with all the grace of a woman's hand, and the lunch was so exquisite and dainty, that Constance, amazed, had paid him a compliment. He half filled an antique glass with champagne, and drank to welcome her to Holland. There was about him, about his surroundings, about his manner, something refined and something timid, something feminine and something shy, something lovable and yet something reserved, as though he were afraid of wounding himself or another. He had obviously devised this reception in order to give pleasure to Constance. The conversation flagged. Ernst never completed his sentences— and his eyes were always wandering round the room. After lunch he was a little more communicative, and he then asked her if she had ever thought on the grace and symbolism of a vase. She listened with interest, while she saw something in van der Velke's glance, as though he thought that Ernst was mad, and Addy listened very seriously, full of tense and silent astonishment. A vase, Ernst said, was like a soul and he took in his hand a slender satsuma vase of ivory-tinted porcelain, with the elegant arabesques waving delicately as a woman's hair. It was like a soul. For Ernst there were sad and merry vases, proud and humble vases, there were love lorn vases and vases of passion, there were vases of desire, and there were dead vases, which only came to life again when he put a flower in them. He said all this very seriously, without a smile, and also without the rhapsody of an artist or poet. He talked almost laconically about his vases, as though any other view would have been quite impossible. Constance had not seen him since that day, because he was the only one who did not come regularly to Mamma's Sunday evenings, and she retained an impression of that afternoon spent with her brother Ernst, as of something exotic and strangely symbolical. Something, it was true, which she had liked and found pleasant and refined, but which, all the same, lacked the familiar cordiality of a brother and sister meeting again after a separation of years. As regards Adolphine and her children, Constance, through a first sense of recoil, had almost unconsciously laid down rules for her feelings, though perhaps she did not see those rules so very clearly outlined in her mind. But unconsciously, she positively refused to dislike Adolphine, and, on the contrary, was positively determined to think everything about Adolphine pleasant and attractive, her husband, her house, her children, and her ideas. If anyone, even Mamma, said the least thing about Adolphine, she at once espoused her cause violently. Through circumstances such as the arranging of her own house and Emily's wedding, She had not as yet been often to the Vansatsumas, but she promised herself not to neglect this in future, and, with the greatest tact, to advise Adolphine in all sorts of matters. It operated strangely in Constance, the feeling of recoil, which, after all, was there, an absolute determination to act against this feeling of recoil, and, combined with these two, a silent wish, a gentle resolve to improve Adolphine in one way and another. She insisted that Addie should ask Adolphine's boys to lunch one Sunday, and though her nerves were racked and she driven almost mad by their rude manners and coarse voices, she had controlled herself and deliberately played the kind auntie. Addie, sacrificing himself for Mamma's sake, had gone out walking with his cousins but had taken the first opportunity of giving the young louts the slip. Knowing his mother's idiosyncrasies, he did not say much when he returned, and even declared that they were not half bad fellows. When his father, however, asked him if he understood why Mamma encouraged those unmannerly cubs, Addie stoically replied, Because they were cousins (one of Mamma's ideas (family affection). Constance, meanwhile, was so tired of the three young Van Satzemers that she did not venture to repeat the experiment. Constance thought Doreen uncertain. Doreen was very pleasant sometimes to go shopping with or would go shopping herself for Constance. It was she who asked, not Constance, and then, at other times, Doreen would be cold and nervously irritable. This was because Doreen had a positive mania for doing all sorts of things for other people, but at the same time was always craving for appreciation, and never thought that she was sufficiently appreciated by any member of the family for whose benefit she ran about. But the mania was too strong for her, and she went on running about, for Mamma, for Bertha, for Constance, for Adolphine, and was always grumbling to herself that she was not appreciated. Yes, she would like to see their faces, if she, Doreen, said one day that she was tired. What would they say, she wondered, if she ventured to suggest that one sometimes gets wet in the rain? Thus she always grumbled to herself, fitful, dissatisfied, discontented, and yet never able to make a comfortable corner for herself in the boarding-house where she lived always tearing along the street, from one sister to the other. It was as though she had a mania that drove her ever onwards. She was miserable if a day came when she had no errands to run, and she would go to Adolphine and say, Look here, if you'd like me to go to Isariefs and ask about those pillowcases for flautcher, you've only got to say so. I'm going that way anyhow. And then when she went that way, she muttered to herself, that is it again, of course, there's only Doreen to inquire about Florcher's pillowcases. Why can't the go herself, or why don't they send the maid? Paul was the one whom Constance saw most often of all the brothers and sisters. He had begun by finding in her a fairly sympathetic listener for his endless unbosomings and philosophisings. Then van der Velke liked him best and they sometimes had a cigarette together in the smoking-room. He was the most of a brother to them of the four, just an ordinary brother. He would arrive in the morning and run straight up to Constance's room, while she was still dressing, and declare that of course he could come in, though she was in her petticoat. When not too long-winded, he had an interesting way of talking which van der Velke appreciated. He always looked at Addie with the eye of a philosopher, and Addie liked him, found him great fun, with his exquisite trousers and wonderful neckties. Constance was fond of him, and it was in Paul that she had really for the first time met a brother again, in Paul, who had come least within her ken in the old days, when she was a girl of twenty, and he a child of thirteen. Translators note Kumbang Spatu, Tropical Flowers Tuan The Great House that is, the viceregal palace at Bautenzorg. End of chapter 20